0: At time of recording, the coronavirus outbreak that originated in China has infected over 4,500 people, though that number is sure to dramatically increase in the coming days. The vast majority of the people affected by this outbreak are in China, though infections have been confirmed in at least 14 other countries. And again, the number of countries impacted will certainly increase in the coming days. There is still a lot we do not know about this virus and the outbreak, but we do know that this coronavirus outbreak is poised to become a major global health crisis. So for this episode, I wanted to give you a sense of the kind of global health infrastructure that exists for exactly moments like this. On the line with me to discuss the international response to this outbreak so far, including actions taken by the World Health Organization, is Ambassador John E. Lang. He is a retired ambassador from the United States who currently serves as a senior fellow for global health diplomacy with the United Nations Foundation. Ambassador Lang also served from 2006 to 2009 as the U.S. Special Representative for Avian Flu and Pandemic Flu Preparedness. This gives him some unique insight into how both the U.S. government and entities like the World Health Organization respond to these kinds of fast-moving outbreaks. We kick off discussing the WHO's role in managing the global response, including the relevance of something called the 2005 International Health Regulations. We also discuss potential scenarios for this outbreak to turn into a pandemic that could deeply impact poorer countries with weak health systems. Now, at the time that I spoke with Ambassador Lang, the World Health Organization had not yet declared that this outbreak constituted a public health emergency of international concern. However, by the time that you are listening to this, they almost certainly will have done so. And we do discuss in this episode at length what a public health emergency of international concern means and why it's so significant. So this episode obviously is dealing with a fast-moving global news story. And whenever I approach those kinds of stories on the podcast, my intention is always to give you context you need to understand events as they unfold. So that was my intention with this episode. I think you will appreciate it. Also, I think one thing this episode does hammer home is the need for more global health professionals. And if you're thinking about pursuing a career in global development or global health, I do strongly encourage you to check out Northwestern University's online master's program in global health. You can learn how to make a meaningful difference in places where it is needed the most. Go to sps.northwestern.edu slash global or click on the ad on globaldispatchespodcast.com to learn more. And if you have any questions about that, Graduate program, please reach out to me directly, and I'm happy to put you in touch with the good folks at Northwestern. All right. And now here is my conversation with Ambassador John E. Lang of the United Nations Foundation. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Eslanyan from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting season four launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube.
1: Uh, today, uh... January 28th, Dr Tedros met with the Chinese president, uh, Xi Jinping, uh, in Beijing, uh, and with him were... uh the WHO regional director for uh, that region, plus uh, the head of the WHO emergencies program, Dr. Mike Ryan. So you're dealing with the highest level people in WHO who uh, will focus on this particular issue. And uh, Tedros himself said afterward, stopping the spread of this virus both in China and globally is WHO's highest priority. So it's very clear that they're fully geared up on this and working with the government of China and other countries that are affected to try to provide the information that they need and how to diagnose the virus, how to manage cases, uh, how to connect surveillance efforts from different countries, Etc., all with the goal of uh, reducing transmission and eventually uh, stamping out uh, what seems to be a growing um, epidemic and maybe a pandemic.
0: So, what is the World Health Organization's role in a situation like this? Like, what can the WHO do, and what can the WHO not do in, in these kinds of situations? The
1: specific role for WHO in this case stems from the international health regulations. Uh, and that's something, uh, it may so- not sound very exciting when you say it stems from regulations, but it's really, uh, uh, one of the few areas of international law dealing with global health. Uh, the regulations themselves, uh, stem, uh, from efforts way back, uh, in 1851 when, uh, there was the, uh, International uh, Sanitary Conference, and the efforts then to revise the international health regulations uh, over the years occurred to the point where they had to be expanded from their original focus, which was just cholera, plague, and yellow fever. And um, in the early 2000s, uh, the severe acute respiratory syndrome, SARS, uh, came about, and that really spurred the effort to finalize the uh, new regulations that were finally adopted by the World Health Assembly, that's all the member states of WHO, now 194 countries, um, in the year 2005. So
0: you're saying it was really like the um, the problematic global response to the SARS outbreak, which also was a coronavirus that originated in China um, in 2003. That led to a revamping of these new international health regulations in 2005. What went wrong in 2003 and how does that 2005 international health regulations sort of offer a remedy to what went wrong?
1: yes it, it, when sars first came about uh, in uh, uh, in february 2003 uh, and ended up uh, killing uh, 774 people and infecting 8098 people uh, it it really sent shockwaves around the world because there was so much fear and confusion what was the cause of this uh, what was the source, the modes of uh, spread, uh, the appropriate interventions, etc. And SARS had a 9.6% case fatality rate, which is uh, about triple to what uh, the um current novel coronavirus has uh and it uh and there was a question of uh uh what seemed to be a lack of transparency on the part of the government of China. Uh so the this while there had been contemplation of updating these uh, international health regulations prior to SARS SARS really spurred this uh and they were quickly uh, produced by 2005 uh, uh so that it would bring about a, um, a fundamental requirement on the part of every government that signed up for this and every member of uh, WHO did sign up for it, um, that um, they, they would uh, uh, accept the uh, legally binding requirement to uh, build their own capacities to detect, prevent, and respond to emerging health threats. And it establishes important norms and guidelines to share information and, and, and report quickly uh, possible uh, uh, health emergencies of international concern to the World Health Organization uh, so that this can be coordinated at the global level by WHO. So WHO is really the repository of the uh, uh, and the secretariat for the international health regulations and it really has set the norm for how countries should respond uh, and uh, and be transparent in their response. And it really uh, has made a major difference in uh, global health.
0: So uh, how, how are yeah. you seeing the international health regulations being applied today in response to this coronavirus, for example?
1: Well, for one thing, uh, there's... Uh, uh, the importance of transparency. Now, uh, Dr. Tedros has said uh, how, that he appreciates the seriousness with which China is taking the outbreak and its commitment from the top leadership and the transparency it's demonstrated, including sharing data and genetic sequence of the virus. There have been some who've complained that China should be more transparent uh, than it uh, has been in terms of sharing uh, not just. Uh, the uh, uh, information, but also the data, but uh, on the whole, I think this is a uh, uh, and I'm not the expert on this, but I think it's a much better uh, uh, emphasis on the transparency than than was witnessed back in uh, two thousand and three. so that's a clear example of how the IHR have uh, made a big impact. But I think the biggest area in this is the public that whether or not WHO will declare a public health emergency of international concern.
0: They call that a and, FIC, uh, right? A FIC, uh, based yeah, on its acronym. It some people call it a feek.
1: Some people call it a PEHIC. And I was in a conversation with some of the World's experts on it, and nobody could agree on What's your preferred nomenclature? I, I like PHEIC. <laughs> PHEIC. Well, we'll, uh, we'll go
0: with PHEIC then. But that basically uh, stands for the Public Health Emergency of International Concern, and this is essentially the most dramatic step that the World Health Organization can take by to invoke this emergency, which I suppose probably triggers other aspects of the international health regulation. C- can you just sort of describe? The process that leads to that declaration, because as we're speaking now, that declaration has not been evoked. There was one meeting of outside experts that are advising the uh, executive director, the director general of the World Health Organization on this. But uh, in that meeting, they declined as of yet to declare that emergency. Um, Could you. Describe the process behind the PHIC and then if the PHIC is invoked, is declared, what that means in terms of those international health regulations, what additional obligations are required uh, by member states of the World Health Organization upon that declaration?
1: Yes, the the, the way uh, the PHIC is defined, there are basically three essential criteria. Uh, it needs to be an extraordinary event uh, with a risk that constitutes a public health risk to other countries through international spread and uh, potentially uh, requires a coordinated international response now uh, the director general uh, does not just uh, uh, make this decision on his own or on uh, 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 or on um, her own as uh, his uh, Dr. Tedros' predecessor was Dr. Margaret Chan. Uh, instead, there's an emergency review committee that meets, and these are true experts in, in public health, uh, and they meet, as they did uh, last week, to discuss whether or not they will recommend to the director general to declare a PHIC, uh, and uh, that it, then it is up to the director general to make the decision. When the committee met last week, it was... Uh, uh, split down the middle and, uh, in terms of whether or not to recommend to the director general to declare one, and he decided not to declare it at that time. Uh, I, uh, I myself was surprised by that. I thought it met the definition of a public health emergency of international concern. But I have to say I've since uh, heard from uh, some people who uh, believe otherwise, that there just wasn't enough data they weren't sure whether it was any worse than seasonal influenza. The severity at that time wasn't yet clear, and there was also concern about the economic and trade implications because once uh is declared, then that uh can trigger actions in terms of uh, uh tests for people that tr uh entering countries uh uh to determine whether or not they're ill uh and other things that can have uh economic and trade implications so uh the decision, and I, I would, from what I gather, was a close one, uh, was that it was not uh, uh, this international emergency of, uh, 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 it's an emergency of international concern. But I have to say, if, if you just look, back, look at how this has progressed, uh, on January 20th, um, eight days ago from today, there were over 200 infections reported. Uh, Today, uh, we now have a total of over 4,500 infections reported. Uh, And while there were three deaths back uh, that were known on January 20th, it's now up to 106. So this has really uh, become much bigger just in days, uh, and it includes uh, 73 cases outside of China. So it has, the international spread has become clearer. I was just on a conference call uh, earlier today with uh, WHO staff saying that once the director general returns from China to Geneva they expect that he soon thereafter will reconvene that emergency review committee to determine whether or not now is the time to declare this PHIC.
0: and so assuming a PHEIC is declared um what happens then like what what is incumbent upon both the WHO and also uh, WHO member states like i guess my understanding is that in part its a bureaucratic designation that uh for one allows for example the expedited you know visa approval of WHO experts and other international health officials to visit affected sites um are are there like other aspects of the international health regulations that are relevant um to the situation if if that emergency declaration is is declared
1: the um Yeah, what happens is, uh, first of all, it clearly puts all countries in the world on notice that this is uh, uh, a, a global concern. And that's uh, then likely to trigger actions. Uh, for, and and those actions are, are clearly uh, needed and, and, and be already being anticipated. Uh, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, for example, yesterday announced that they were giving $10 million, $5 million to entities in China, and also $5 million to the African Centers for Disease Control and Prevention Uh so that uh, they can help improve the preparedness on the part of african uh, governments, uh, and that's uh along the lines of what one what one can expect globally once a pHIC is uh, declared because it does trigger that those international actions now w h o normally doesn't recommend uh, travel restrictions, but those um, uh, but, but it has developed guidance for travelers and for airports and other points of entry. And that's the kind of thing that will kick in uh, once that uh, PEHIC is declared. Uh, uh, and so uh, you'll, you, it, it basically puts the entire world in a higher state of uh, vigilance.
0: So from 2006 to 2009, you served in the State Department as the Special Representative on Avian and Pandemic Influenza. Um Presumably, you um, game planned and went through various scenarios for situations like this. Can you just sort of discuss what th- how that experience is informing how you're understanding the develop this developing situation, and and what sort of preparations the U.S. government, for example, would be making in a situation like this?
1: Yes, uh, uh, while I'm no longer in the State Department. Um, uh, I, it, the, the, that whole experience is informing me, but I have to say there are people who were very much involved, uh, in, uh, the planning, uh, uh, for a possible, uh, pandemic influenza stemming from the H5N1 virus back in that period, 2006 to 2009, when I was working on this, who are, who are still in the U S government, uh, including at CDC at very high levels and all of that kind of preparedness that was done in the past, uh, helps to uh, to develop uh, the responses to the current situation and even though uh, this novel coronavirus is not uh, influenza many of the uh, the things that one does uh, and, and needs to do are are, are similar uh, for example uh, there were a lot of uh, studies and modeling done uh, during the presidency of uh, George W. Bush uh, on the idea of whether uh, uh, the U.S. government should close its borders uh, if uh, to try to keep out the uh, pandemic. Uh, and the, all the conclusions were that it uh, would uh, give only uh, maybe a week's worth of uh, gain uh if you tried to close the border because uh, th- there's just no way to completely seal off the United States uh and uh, and you can't just uh, uh do that kind of thing without Having major disruptions to not just uh people crossing borders but uh, but trade uh, and uh, could really uh, cause much more harm to the u s economy than any good uh, by gaining a sh- short amount of time uh, uh, by closing the border so and that 's uh something that uh, I would assume uh will apply now also and particularly since we already have some cases in the United States and people being uh uh, checked right uh, as we speak uh, as to whether or not they uh, have the uh, novel coronavirus. Uh, it's just the kind of thing where it sounds easier. That, that, uh, it sounds so obvious. Well, let's just close the border and we'll keep it out. And all the studies and, and modeling indicate that that won't, won't work. So that's one of an, one example of uh, some of the studies that were done to prepare for pandemic influenza that would apply now
0: in the coming sort of weeks and even days. Are there any indicators that you're going to be looking to that will suggest to you one way or another how this uh, situation is un- is unfolding?
1: Yeah, we're talking days and uh, maybe a few weeks to see how this unfolds. Uh, one of the keys is human-to-human transmission. Uh, if that is self-sustaining, uh, that is a major concern. Uh, and that was the concern back when we were worried about H5N1, which was known as bird flu. Uh, you had a, just a few cases within families of uh, human-to-human transmission, but mostly it came from very close contact with poultry that were infected by H5N1. Uh, in the case that we're uh, dealing with now with the novel coronavirus, initially uh, it seemed that the only people who got it were at uh, these uh, wet markets in um, that were near Wuhan, uh, uh, in China. And, uh, those live markets with, uh, with uh, animals, and some speculate that this came from bats. Um, uh, th- th- they were the ones who were getting it. Since then, there has been human-to-human transmission, and um, it's already present in uh, most, if not all, major cities in China. Uh, so uh, th- that's probably the single most important factor in my mind as to uh, uh, what the future of this holds. Another factor is what, uh, what what an expert would call the R not factor. It's the reproductive uh, level, and, and if uh, if it reproduces. At a level of less than uh, uh, one, in other words, every individual infects less or fewer than one other person, then you, uh, then eventually this dies out. If it's more than one, then it will spread. And right now the estimates are it's about 1.5 to 3.5. Uh, so that, uh, and while it's very early to get some of these estimates, if that were to continue, that would mean this will spread and not be quickly, uh, Uh, eliminated and once if it is spread then one of the key things is to limit uh, population uh, mobility uh, what they call social distancing and what they've already been doing in uh, China especially at the time of the Lunar New Year celebration there is to cancel mass gatherings and close schools and uh, you can urge people to work from home um, and other things so that uh, by limiting that population mobility you can try to uh, keep uh, many people from being coming infected
0: um okay well this is is there anything else you think is worth emphasizing or discussing or pointing out about the global response or you know just in general the situation
1: yeah i think uh, one of the important things that's uh, come about um, in uh, the years uh, since sars Uh, is not only the international health regulations, but certain norms uh, for uh, sharing of data. Uh, For example, the global initiative on sharing all uh, influenza data called GSAID uh, is a platform for open and timely sharing of influenza data and for building trust. Uh, And the theory is that transparency brings about confidence, which which brings about rapid sharing of critical data. And uh, uh, China has, uh, uh, released, uh, genome sequencing through GSAID and, uh, China, Japan, Thailand, Taiwan, and the U.S. have been sharing genetic sequence and metadata in this, this situation. And that's, so it's, it's not just a matter of, uh, uh, one entity out there, WHO and its international health regulations that are dealing with this globally, but others also, uh, uh that, that are, uh, working to uh, try to uh, help uh, scientists uh, analyze this uh, the, the pharmaceutical industry will be working on vaccines uh, once uh, this uh, uh, the uh, uh viruses themselves are available for that and that will uh uh possibly then become a, a longer term solution, even though it takes many months to put it together. Um, and um, there's one other thing I think is very important to, to mention that, that has occurred since uh, uh, in this period, uh, uh, since SARS, and that is the uh, global health security agenda. It was launched in February 2014. Uh, It has about 60 or 70 governments that are involved in it and and many other institutions, um, including the United Nations Foundation, where I work. Uh, And that has uh, been an effort to try to promote uh, uh, and help countries to build the capacities that they need under the international health regulations. Because even if you say that these uh, international health regulations are uh, 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 out there and uh, accepted by all countries, that doesn't mean all countries, uh, in especially low- and middle-income countries, have had the capability to build up their capacities, laboratories, trained staff, etc., that you need to monitor Infectious disease outbreaks such as this one, and uh, GHSA has uh, been a major uh, effort uh, to uh, build up those capacities as well as other capacities to improve health security.
0: Well, it's just interesting so you've just like of, cited exactly. just like a number of. Well, it's just interesting that you've cited a number of sort of innovations and like global governance and, and multilateral cooperation that have occurred over the last decade that seem to have like this, you know, kind, kind of seem to be custom built for. This very situation. And it seems in a way, this is both a demonstration, one of the value of things like the international health regulations and the uh, global health security uh, initiative that you just described, but also sort of a test of them as well.
1: Yes, but I think uh, it is a test. But I, uh, my concern is that uh, uh, despite all the efforts that have been uh, done over the last several years to focus on these needs to build capacity uh, uh, on uh, uh, under the international health regulations in, in especially in lower middle-income countries so much more needs to be done it's a matter of providing the financing and the part of donor governments uh, and other institutions to get, to help countries so they can uh, make it a priority to build up those capacities and uh, to tell you the truth one of my uh, concerns in a global context is uh, in Africa. I already mentioned how the Gates Foundation has given five million dollars to the African CDC but you also have uh, a lot of Chinese who are working in Africa based there who uh, presumably uh, uh, many of them went to China for the Lunar New Year when they come back to their uh, homes in Africa uh, you may find that uh, this starts spreading there and uh, having spent uh, much of my career in Africa uh, uh, at different embassies uh, I must say it's very worrisome just when when these kinds of uh, things uh, an infectious disease outbreak such as this one uh, hits a, a, a very uh, poor country uh, it could be very uh, bad so, because at so least like China the other
0: has, yeah like some capacity to respond but the capacity is far limited say in places you know like where you're an ambassador like Tanzania
1: Yeah, or or Botswana uh, or Togo, the the three countries where uh, where I was based in. And so I I have to say uh, we have all these efforts out here, but uh, there isn't anybody who's been dealing with uh, the IHR or the global Health security agenda or these other efforts who would say say that they're well-funded.
0: Uh, can i ask one final question uh you brought up taiwan um how has the sort of relationship between taiwan and china complicated the global response to uh this new coronavirus right now or has it
1: i'm not aware of a complication that has occurred but it does get to be a little tricky within the context of uh a U.N. agency when you have um, uh, Taiwan uh, uh, and its uh, uh, and, and, and China and how they uh, relate to each other, uh, and uh, the WHO is no exception in that regard. But at the moment, I, I'm not aware of any concerns or complications that have uh, arisen uh,
0: during this current outbreak. Um, all right, uh, well, thank you so much for your time, Ambassador. This is very helpful. All right, very good to talk to you, Mark. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Ambassador Lang. That was very helpful. And as I said at the outset, you know, I, I do think it does provide some helpful context for understanding events as they unfold. Uh, so let me know. Let me know what you think about this episode. Let me know what's on your mind. You can always reach out to me using the contact button on global dispatches com. All right. See you next time. Bye.